Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us today. Before I get any further, I want to thank Bradley George, who filled in for me for the last couple of days while my wife and I were out in the front range of the Rocky Mountains, where there's no snow at all. But if you are one of those fortunate people who get to go on a winter uh, ski trip, a Christmas ski trip uh, to Colorado, Boy, on the other side of the Eisenhower Pass, Aspen, Vale, they are just, they got so much snow, you can't believe it, so you'll have a lot of fun out there. But thank you to Bradley George for uh, taking over while I was gone. Greg Bluestein is here. Glad to have you, AJC political reporter. He's uh, in the uh, Dead Tree edition of the paper um, virtually every day, at least one byline. And, of course, he uh, also files for Political Insider, part of uh, myajc.com. No Hi. skiing for me. I've, I've only been twice, and once was on fake snow, and I just couldn't get the hang of it. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't mean to create the impression that I'm a skier. I am not. We just go out to visit family. Sitting across. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, people have already started saying they love our mayor shows, and I'm glad you are aware of them. We have our two mayors here in the studio today, Teresa Tomlinson, just ending her tenure yes. as mayor of Columbus, Georgia. Um Welcome, Teresa. Thank you. Are you you're done after the first of the year officially, right. right? January 7th at midnight, but I just had my last city council meeting yesterday. And and the council gave you a wonderful tribute. Yeah, they're really great people. We have wonderful councilors in, in Columbus, and we have a great mayor-elect, so that's exciting. And uh, Mayor of Sandy Springs, Rusty Paul, is back with us again today. He's going to be a new mayoral protagonist. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I, I, I'm just learning learned how to deal with Teresa. I mean, <laughs> we're going to find a good one. <laughs> uh, well, we're really glad when you two are here. And Mary Margaret Oliver, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, is with us as well. Uh, and we're, you know, we always like having you on the panel, Mary Margaret. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's start just with the, the headline that everybody <laughs> is pretty much aware of, I think, by now. Michael Cohen has been to federal court this morning and uh, was sentenced to three years uh, the judge said uh, that the crimes that he committed, uh, while, while Cohen likes to uh, frame it as his having become uh, trapped by Donald Trump and, and having become too enthusiastic about working to protect Donald Trump, the judge pointed out there were serious uh, crimes that he committed to benefit himself. But So he gets three years. But I think here's what's interesting about this, I think. Um, there is no th nothing that will prevent, and you lawyers in the room might be able to help on this, there's nothing. He has withheld certain information. It's another reason he um, got a heavier sentence than he would have liked. But there is now nothing to prevent him from working again with the federal prosecutors in New York or with <laughs> Mueller to add more information. And as I understand it, Mary Margaret, should he do that, now that he knows he's got three years to serve, that sentence could be altered. I think it very much could <clears throat> be altered. And, of course, all of these guys are out for themselves at this point. Nobody wants to go to the penitentiary. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting about that, Rusty, is we know the White House keeps saying it's over, nothing is proven, Cohn didn't implicate the president at all. So they can't really quite breathe a sigh of relief just because the sentence has been handed down today. No, and, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> one of the things that you never want to get is in the crosshairs of a federal prosecutor. Yeah. <laughs> they have about a 98.5% conviction rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, you've got a choice. You can either work with them and, and spare yourself or you're gonna you're gonna spend some time in jail. I mean, that's just the way the federal system works. They're, uh, they're very efficient. Teresa, this is yeah. right up your alley, having been uh, an attorney yeah. who was who was uh, dealing with corporate corruption through right. an earlier part of your career. Right. I think um, you know my guess is it was one or two things going on. One, he just wanted to set what his maximum would be is three years. Now he's going to work against it, as you suggested. Um, and come out with some more information. But the Southern District of New York does have this long history of requiring that you fess up to everything, even things they may not know. The other thing that I think is interesting, because you see this uh, in some of the Manafort 
filings, too, where, of course, he's lost his deal, is that these folks were clearly involved in a lot of money laundering type schemes. And that information's yet to come out and be fully fleshed out. But certainly, a lot of what they were involved in, it, it, it involves uh, the illegal transfer of money, possibly money laundering. And when you're talking about money laundering, you're dealing with some pretty bad dudes. It's kind of like drug dealing, which is a whole other thing. Uh, nobody in there um, is, is uh, you know, Mary Poppins. And so, um, and so he could have been fearful, frankly, of what the repercussions of, of telling the full truth were going to be. And so I think we're going to see that with both Manafort uh, and, uh, and, and Cohen. And I think it is a, a lesson for all those out there. Be very careful who you deal with. All right. Well, we'll watch and see how that unfolds. Um, let's talk about some state politics. Okay, Bluestein? Yeah, I'm in. Uh, the, uh, the commission, which was impaneled by uh, then Secretary of State Brian Kemp at the very beginning of the year, uh, to uh, look at our election, how we vote, the machines we're using to vote on, which have become, uh, which have obviously garnished, uh, garnered great criticism. Uh, what do we need to do to replace those machines? What do we want to switch to? Uh, Greg, that commission is meeting for the first time since the election. Uh, they're down in Macon today. Uh, our Stephen Fowler is down there. Let's just listen to a report that he filed a few minutes ago. Several dozen people are here in Macon to participate in the SAFE Commission meeting. What is this commission? It's a bipartisan group of lawmakers, elections officials, state party representatives, and other experts tasked with deciding how to replace Georgia's 16-year-old touchscreen voting machines. There's several options on the table, hand-marked paper ballots, touchscreen machines that print out a piece of paper with your votes that are then scanned by a barcode. The general sense here is that the next voting system needs to have some sort of voter verifiable paper trail. Some of the people here today have filed lawsuits trying to move the state towards hand-marked paper ballots and will certainly have their chance in front of the podium today. In the morning, we heard presentations about restoring trust in the electoral system and recommendations for how to codify these changes. We've heard about how to conduct audits with a new system to make sure they worked, and former Secretary of State Kathy Cox talked about her experience overhauling the state's election systems and warned the commission against throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and bring back known problems the state has already faced just to fix one other problem. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Macon. So, uh... Greg Bluestein, one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, you all in the Political Insider blog yesterday filed a story about the commission in which you quoted Wenke Lee, uh, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that first name correctly, a Georgia Tech professor who's the cybersecurity uh, 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 expert on the panel, and he's already written a report in which he says we need to have paper balloting and optical scan readers because he believes... Any other system we would use is is potentially is hackable. Exactly, and 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 that's where the distinction is: is that he said uh, hand marked paper ballots that are scanned and then tallied electronically, but also with a version dropped in a physical safe box, so that there's there's almost two copies of every vote, so that they can be cross checked and audited. And that's something we do not have right now with the with the state's um, touch screen voter machines. And Mary Margaret, one of the things that's interesting about that is that we have already heard both as a candidate and now as Secretary of State elect that, uh, and he said it on our show the day after he won the runoff that uh, Brad Raffensperger, the, <laughs> who will be the uh, Secretary of State, wants to have touch screen voting. Yes, he wants a paper. Trail, but he's arguing that we'd need to replace one touchscreen machine with another, just adding the paper trail. I've been in the middle of the discussions about the machines on the committees I serve, and here is a bar bipartisan agreement that we're going to buy new machines. We have to <clears throat> make those decisions in budget form in the 2019 session. We agree that the methodology or whatever machine we purchased has to have a paper element to it that's verifiable, and we have to make sure that the machines are auditable under a reasonable expectation. Where the disagreements lie is what does paper mean? Does the paper start with the voter or does the paper generate by the machine? And most of the vendors now are generating the piece of paper from the machine. You don't verify you under the, the modern, most commonly purchased machine the voter gets a piece of paper that says, I voted this way, and that piece of paper becomes what can be audited. 
Today, you get a verification of what you voted by looking at the machine. Looking at the screen, right. What's confusing to me, though, is he says anything else is hackable. The voting machine at my precinct at Druid Hills High School is not on the Internet. It's not a machine you can access in any kind of Internet way. So I'm confused by that. Well, what happens in that situation? I, I, my son's a data security guy, and he was at the Black Hat convention that hacked yeah. our, our system. Uh, he said it took him an hour and 15 minutes, an hour to do the scans, and 15 minutes once they got the scans done to, to crash, crash into the system. You don't hack the individual machines. You hack the software at the source. And it's like it's like going to a, a, um, a slot machine in Vegas. You, you, you know, the, the odds are already baked into the cake. And so, you know, you get whatever you get. When I was in, in the Senate, this came up, and Kathy Cox and Roy Barnes were pushing the, the system we have today. And Senator Mike Crotch and I were on the committee, uh, to, and we argued vociferously that at that time they needed the paper trail because there was no way to audit it. And uh, they just basically came down to cost. They said, we can't afford the machines and the printers. But if you lose faith in the, the accuracy of your vote, that undercuts all of our system of democracy. And so we have to have that ability to audit whatever the vote and so have that voter look at that paper. I don't have a problem with touchscreen as long as there's a piece of paper that that voter says, yes, I voted this way, drop it into a safe box, and then we can go and, back and, and look. And you know it's interesting to hear you say that, Rusty, because I, I, I never quite give all of your credentials, so I'll add one now. Former chairman of the Georgia Republican right. Party. Uh, so to hear you say that at a time when there are people out there, and I know Mary Margaret is one of them, who are concerned that the Georgia Republican Party is not uh, dedicated to election uh, accuracy is very powerful and meaningful. Well, I, I, know, I think that's a mischaracterization. Okay. I, th I, th I think that what they want is they want a fair, accurate election, and uh, the, the debate is what that definition is and who should be, you know, what's, what's qualified to vote. And we have provisional balloting, and that, that's generally where the system begins to fall apart is, in, is when we get into provisional balloting. Uh, but... I think that there's a way to be able to, with the, today's technology, we should be able to find a system that we can increase the reliability. I think the current system's reliable. I don't think that there's a serious problem, even though it could be hacked at the source. But there's enough of a concern that I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure we ensure, take that extra, extra step to ensure that people know that they're voted in a particular way and it's counted and can be audited. Uh, Teresa, Rusty said an important thing. If we do not have faith yeah. that our election is being reported accurately mm -hmm. and honestly, we lose faith in government. Yes. And yet, again, <clears throat> uh, even as uh, uh, Governor-elect Kemp moves mm -hmm. into the governing phase of his career as governor, um, we're still there's still a shadow hanging over the election. Uh, I'm not... I, I'm not saying that to suggest that it is a shadow that belongs there. I find it—I'm not sure I understand that well right. enough, but it is there. Well, you're right. I mean, absolutely, and that's what you saw and heard from hundreds of thousands of people that gave voice to this concern, absolutely, from the purging of the uh, vo of the voter rolls uh, and how exactly and why exactly that was done uh, to how these systems are working to the Amico lawsuit that talks about uh, whether these votes, 100,000 votes, were switched uh, because of the machines not functioning properly. A, a couple of quick things. Uh, I think inevitably we're going to have some sort of paper trail. I will say that I was not there to hear Kathy Cox's a statement, but from what the reporter uh, stated, I suspect she was saying, "Be careful of thinking that hand-marked ballots are the end-all, yeah. be-all, because yeah. they have, you know, the stories yeah. involving problems with hand-marked ballots are legion, and so we need to to be careful." One last thing I would say: sure. we're always fixing, you know, yesterday's problems, but this is a critical and urgent problem that should have been fixed, dealt with long ago, but for various reasons was not, and now we have no choice to fix it right now. Um, however, I've just got to tell you, Mary Margaret, leave that as a standing committee that you're on, because we have got to get to somehow electronic voting just to make everybody scream with horror. But the, but the, the uh, millennials and the Gen Zs are not going to stand in line for five hours in the future. So you've got to get to electronic voting. You've got to get to... What does that mean? We're doing home, electronic voting. voting. Oh. We're, we're doing it with... Um, 
already with military ballots and 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 we email military ballots overseas now in Georgia they have to US mail them back uh, but some other states allow electronic voting uh, for military personnel and so forth so I'm just saying after we get through this urgent problem um, we need to start planning for the future and not letting these problems bite us in the back. Mary Margaret, you're quoted in the AJC this week as saying, if we don't start dealing with this now, 2020, it's going to be right around the corner. We've got to get these new machines, whatever they are, in place. We will make a decision and we will appropriate in the 2019 session because we have to vote everywhere I go. And I think this is true of other members of the General Assembly. I am approached by somebody who says I don't trust the vote. I come with a prop this morning. I go to my <laughs> book club, and I'm handed an absentee ballot that was received by a voter on December 11th. Can you, what county? Is it a DeKalb County? DeKalb County in my okay. precinct yeah. on my oh, street. Oh, okay. So these are pe- people, reasonable people, don't trust the system. But more importantly to me as a longtime lawyer, the federal judges don't like our system. We need to look at every single instance where the federal judge in the last six months has been on the side of the voter and not on the side of the secretary of state or on the election supervisor. We need to look at those court orders, and we need to make reasonable, bipartisan, publicly discussed decisions on where were these judges right. And I'll tell you, in a wide variety of issues to be discussed, the issues where the judges were always consistent and always in my view, right, is that exact match signature is not a lawful way to deny somebody a right to vote. So let me, okay, I want to get to that in a second. But, Greg, one of the reasons I asked Mary Margaret if that came from a voter in what county that voter came from was to understand DeKalb County is a Democratic county. When we have all of this suspicion that some have cast on how Republicans in, you know, the Secretary of State's office oversee the election, here's a voter in DeKalb County, the Democratic Mm -hmm. county, who didn't get uh, uh, that vote posted until December. So this is not a partisan problem necessarily. Some are partisan problems and some some are not. not. And and what what a lot of Democrats also point out is even though these are Democratic-controlled counties that have have a lot of these issues— they're lacking in over in guiding oversight. and oversight from the Secretary of State's office. Look, there's 159 different standards to count provisional ballots and absentee ballots right now. And is that Brian Kemp's fault as Secretary of State when when lawmakers didn't uh, approve a law to, to say this? You know, maybe not. But but what they want is is some sort of new voting rights procedures, and that's where this session could get really interesting. We already, as Representative Oliver mentioned have a consensus of sorts about new voting machines. But, you know, this this voting legislation could go far, far deeper than that. What and more might we see? We are going to see issues about when you can purge, when you can't purge. There's pre-filed bills that the, the legislation that was created in a partisan way about purging voters has to be repealed. We also are going to have to look at better rules on absentee ballots. All the federal judges that I can track these quarters says that the absentee ballots may be counted after, may be received lawfully after 7 o'clock on Election Day. They all extended the time based on all this mess about when they go out. We know we do have special rules for the military. We know that that's a future. We, In their agreements about these machines that we are going to purchase that will have a paper element that will be auditable, it will not be the last machine we purchase in my lifetime. Right, right. We are looking towards the future, and we're in a bad spot right now, and it is a bipartisan obligation that we take action to reassure the voters that their vote counts. Rusty, we always deal with this question that does uh, <clears throat> prove to be the partisan divide, voter security uh, as opposed to uh, v- what, voter what, suppression. Uh, appre- yeah, suppression. <laughs> Look, Are yeah. We, Republicans like to talk about preventing fraud at the polls. Democrats say, no, you're not preventing fraud. You are, in fact, suppressing the vote. Well, last Friday was the 41st <clears throat> anniversary of my very first election. So I've seen a few in, in my lifetime. Who would you vote for? Uh, I voted for me at that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I have watched partisans on both sides 
try to manipulate the voter systems, uh, you know, and, and when the Democrats were in power or the Republicans in power, all of them are trying to write the rules that give them a marginal advantage. They're, that's something that's, that both parties are guilty of. But what I have, to, what I have found out in, in over 40 years of being involved in elective life is that on Election Day, the voters take control. And, and I think we talked a little bit before we went on the air we all agree that the system we have today is much more accurate than the paper systems that we had 20, 30 years ago, that when we'd find paper ballots in the back of a rural courthouse somewhere or in some other areas, at least you're not having that issue anymore. So are there problems with it? Yes, there are problems in every election, but they, it's just like the Bible says, it rains on the just and the unjust. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It, the mistakes are pretty much washed through uh, on, on both sides. I had to stand in line for an hour and a half, and I watched people who were Republican voters walk away from the polls because they weren't going to stand in line that long. So there were mistakes. And, and let me just say, that is ridiculous, that, that we, voting should be so easy yeah. and so encouraged, and our process is not good, and we don't need to be making false equivalencies in my perspective here uh, about suppression versus what is a most negligible uh, perceived threat of, quote, voter fraud. Uh, but nevertheless, we can we can prevent them both by having a very, very good system. And I think we should not lose Mary Margaret's uh, point, which is federal uh, objective arbiters have told us that we have serious problems. And um, and so we need to stop this business about uh, Democrats are making the, this up for partisan purposes and so on and so forth. Federal judges have so far in every instance ruled with the Democratic concerns of there being problems statewide. And, and I think that Greg made a very good point, too, because I've talked with our registrar. I've talked with other registrars. They are getting extremely little guidance. No. 159. No, no enforcement. And, and they're, they're trying to figure these things out for themselves and do best by their people. And they we need a system with strong leadership and guidance. So what, Rusty, what Rusty just said, I appreciate. There's a tremendous amount of agreement here. But I am not going to use your time, the listener's time, or my legislative time to talk about how everybody's been bad in the past. I want to be realistic that we are in an incredibly sophisticated, transparent voting system now based on our computers. We have access to technology that didn't exist before. I'm not going to participate in a discussion that says, oh, everybody does it and it's all corrupt. I want to say to the voter... We have an affirmative obligation to do something about the distrust. Greg, that sets up my question to you. Uh, it does seem, it, first of all, I, really two questions to you. One, do you imagine that the Republican-controlled legislature might look favorably upon some of the voting reform measures that come before it? Um, so things like if somebody tries to overturn exact match, I suspect it's going to be tough for Republicans to jump on board of that. With that, maybe I'm wrong. But at the same time, it also seems like Brian Kemp, who you saw out in Athens yesterday, Mm -hmm. being much more uh, moderated in his tone, Mm -hmm. uh, talking about reaching out. This there is an opportunity for him as governor to uh, pick some of these and support them to show that he does understand there have been problems. Exactly, and he has not ruled that out. I mean, he has not out- outlined what he's going to do with voting uh, reforms, but he has not also not ruled that out, and that's very important here because if you're Brian Kemp and you just won an election by the skin of your teeth and you know that your party is struggling in the suburbs where it used to be uh, you know, doing very, str- doing very well, uh, then you're going to have to reach out to the middle. And I talked to a number of Republicans over the last couple of days in Athens at the Biennial, and you heard the same different things from Republicans. You heard the same things over and over again. They want to focus on pocketbook issues. They want to fo- focus on the economy in rural Georgia. And there is an appetite to tackle some of these voting issues because they don't want this coming back to haunt them in 2020 when there's another very competitive election up. All right. Uh, let's do this. We've got to get a break out of the way. Uh, but as long as we're talking about the 2020 election, when we get back, we have just a couple of questions for one of the members of our panel. This is Political Rewind. 
You've counted on GPB throughout 2018 to bring you insights into important issues and events, and you'll continue to rely on GPB in the new year. Your support makes all the programs that matter to you possible. As you support the organizations that are important to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thanks and happy holidays. First thing out of her mouth. I don't remember. Oh, we're back on the air. No. <laughs> that was quick. Yeah. We're just chatting away. Yeah. Mary Margaret Oliver, Democratic <laughs> member of the House, of the Georgia House. We had a live uh, mic is with us. We had a live. Yeah, but unfortunately it was a positive one. <laughs> Robin Ford, uh, who's one of our faithful Facebook uh, live uh, participants, says, I just hate that I have to miss watching today's episode live I love it when the mayors are on the panel. I'll definitely <laughs> listen to it later. All right. Almost former mayor, Teresa Tomlinson. Yes. Uh, your name is being bandied about a lot of, uh, these days. Uh, people want to know whether, in fact, you're planning on mounting a campaign uh, for uh, the United States Senate running against David Perdue in 2020. I know you're not ready to make an announcement today. But we can't any longer not at least ask you to give us some of your thoughts. Since you're on the show frequently, I think our listeners need to hear from you. Well, I appreciate that. And, <laughs> and every time you do kick the name around, my cell phone blows up. So even if I'm not, you know, I start getting all these text messages. But anyway, I, I certainly appreciate it. And I have been very candid, as, as you know, Bill. I am seriously looking at it, but I have made no decision. And, and apparently that is bizarre to people. I guess people just run off anytime somebody suggests they run for higher office and they just fling their whole family and their whole lives into um, <laughs> into this process. But I am a more methodical and I like to think responsible person. Um, but I can assure you that if I uh, continue this process and I uh, see a clear va uh, path to victory, you'll see my name in the hat. If I uh, decide for whatever reasons uh, something different, I'll certainly let everyone know. But I'm seriously considering it. And that's all I can tell you at this time. Ask a quick follow-up. Is sure. your decision contingent on what anyone else does? Like, would you get in if Stacey Abrams Yeah, still? yeah. No, it, I, it, to me, it's about um, what conversation do you want to have with the state of Georgia about where we are? And it's not so much about what other people are going to do. And I, um, because I think that there's always going to be names that are kicked around and if you are um, focusing on who your competition might be, you're going to drive yourself crazy and not, not focused on the things of, of what your campaign might be, what your message might be. And, and really, this is the crux of the issue, Greg, is, is this your time? You know, are you the candidate for this time or not? And, and uh, that's what every candidate, I think, has to ask themselves. I will say I did read your article um, about Stacey Abrams, and I, I had to laugh because I feel kind of very much the same way. She, she's just invested $40 million in name recognition. Um, if you think she's going to go quietly into the night. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and she has a new commercial yeah. That's what, yeah, that's on the air right now. she's going to have a commercial. Yeah. She's going to keep capitalizing on this. She is a national powerhouse, and we, may, we are going to see her on a short list for VP. I'm convinced of it, whether that ever happens, but she will be uh, on a short list, and, um, and who knows what the future holds by, for her. By the way, the commercial is a commercial urging people People to sign up for the Affordable Care Act before time runs out. But Rusty, very shrewd, very clever. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bill, I will. I will make an announcement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not running for anything <laughs> yet. Wow. You're not going to challenge Senator Perdue? <laughs> no, not this week. No, I. You know, I. I I'm not. I can't. I can say unequivocally, I'm not running for anything. So that's. Uh, but Rusty, let me as long as you got the ball. Let me keep it in your court for right. a minute. Um. And Teresa probably is going to have to stay out of this part of the conversation. Uh, it, Stacey Abrams has, she ran such a successful campaign. She is such a star right now, not just here in Georgia, but across the country. Um, you know, there are many people who speculate that really what she wants to do is take another crack at governor in four years, which may very well be true. But, in t but it does she, as a former party chair, different party, but the same uh, uh, set of rules, essentially, does she have to kind of start saying where she's headed? She can freeze a lot of people like a Teresa Tomlinson in play. Well, maybe not Teresa. She says she won't be frozen. But other candidates could be frozen. Well, she, she owes Money it, people yeah. could be frozen. No, um, she owes it to her party 
and Teresa and anybody <laughs> else who are contemplating going forward not to preclude them from making wise decisions about what they want to do with their career. So sooner rather than later, I, I mean, I know Senator Perdue is getting ready. He's in the next week or so kicking off his campaign. So, you know, if the Democrats are going to field a, a reputable candidate that is not Stacey Abrams, they've got a lot of work to do, don't they, Teresa? I think some would say so. Some what's say your, take, what's your take on this, Mary She's Margaret. a national star. Yep. She's a national asset for Georgia in any capacity. I think Brian Kemp, although he, he, tr he tried to make a nice speech yesterday about we're in this together, the image of Georgia for a while is going to be him pointing a gun at that teenager and voter suppression. By contrast, Stacey Abrams still has the far different image of Georgia and Georgia's future. She is a national star. She's going to go places. Uh, I leave it to her good judgment and her good strategy as to what steps she takes. Yes, but as someone who will be courted, do you believe that—do that? that st do you need to hear a message from Stacey Abrams, even if it's not in the pages of the AJC— about what she's thinking her plans are we going to be. In those pages. Yeah, well, of course. Do <laughs> you need, need to, to hear her say, you know, Mary Margaret, I'm thinking I'd like to give somebody else a shot at U.S. Senate. I'll wait for the, the re-election campaign of Brian Kemp. I don't think I need to hear that soon. Okay. I don't think I need to hear that right away. I think that she deserves the position of national respect that she, in my view, that she's earned. I think there's more she can do for Georgia, as there are other good candidates across Georgia. Um, I don't feel compelled to give her advice about her timetable. She's playing, um, uh, Stacey Abrams is playing her cards close to the, to the vest, obviously. She's hinted at Senate, she's hinted at Governor, she's hinted at other things. And her supporters say that they're building an operation for her so that she can do whatever she wants, whether that be Governor or Senate. My hunch is still Governor. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who are close to her who say that, look, politicians aren't fungible things. They can't just be forced to do one thing or another just because the seat is open. And she's always wanted to be governor. Well, first she always wanted to be mayor, um, but then she wanted to be governor. Um, in, in high school, she wrote down that she wanted, she, her dream was to be mayor of Atlanta. Uh, but that, that's expanded to now be governor. Now, she could see a poll that shows her six points ahead of, of David Perdue, and it could be really enticing once she starts getting a lot of national figures who are urging her to run. And I think there's some are already urging her. Um, but she also, look, up until yesterday with the, with the TV ad about health care, everything she's done was about voting rights and seems squarely aimed at Brian Kemp, to me at least. Yeah. But why in the world would she take any more determinative, determinative position right now? We don't know yeah. what's going to happen to President Trump. I don't know what's going to happen, whether he's going to be president a year from now. David uh, Perdue is tying his image to the, David, to the President Trump image how in the world could she or anybody else make a decision today? We are forcing a political decision on somebody who has every asset going for her and makes has no need in this immediate future to make a decision for our benefit. Well, rest, well, well, with one, well, I'll take, I'll, I'll argue the other side, Mary Margaret, as a former party chairman. In today's world, you you need to know what your field is looking like as early as you possibly yep. can. And uh, the longer she waits to make that decision, she doesn't have to make it this week, but sometime early in 2019, she's got to let the Teresa Tomlinsons and everybody else who's thinking about running, because Teresa is not starting from where Stacey Abrams starts if Teresa decides she's going to run. <laughs> Yeah, And so she's got a lot of work to do, and whoever else is on the ticket that didn't run, they've got to build what she already has. So she's either got to, she's got to just out of party loyalty needs to tip off her friends and allies in the Democratic Party about what her intentions are. May I say this in closing, uh, at least on that? Um, <laughs> well, that, you uh, can. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to listen. Right, right. <laughs> no, I, I thought you were going to move on to something else. But I, I'll just say this. It's all going to be okay. It's going to end up 
exactly as it's supposed to be. And I just I do think it is premature. And and I you know, as a Democrat, I got to tell you, I love seeing Stacey out there doing all this stuff. It's great for Democrats. It's Amen. great for Georgia. Amen. Go, go, go. That's what we all invested in. Greg, you get the last it's word. It's kind of fun also seeing all the chips lining up elsewhere, too. I mean, John Ossoff's holding a town hall meeting up in Habersham County tomorrow night in Cornelia, Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, expanding his base a little bit. You're already hearing some murmurings from some other candidates, potential candidates who who could start, you know, raising their interest a little bit more. Uh, but I think everything's frozen until Stacey Abrams well, decides. All right. So uh, uh, let's look at the other side of this, Rusty, because Mary Margaret already uh, uh, referred to this. We we know that uh, David Perdue has tied himself to the to the president's side for uh, his first uh, years in office. Uh and we know that the 2018 midterms are giving some people pause about how closely they have to ally themselves with the president these days. Does Purdue, from, from, from your perspective, does he have to declare to any, in any way an independence from, from, from Trump? Or does he count on the fact that Georgia will remain a reliably red state in 2020 and a reliably pro-Trump? Uh, Trump state. Well, there, there's two things that you got to try and figure out between now and, and, and then. One, any Republican who's running statewide in 2020 is going to probably adhere very closely to the to the Brian Kemp playbook, which is try and optimize and maximize your turnout in, in the rural part of the state and hope you can hold on by doing that. And uh, there's a bet they're betting that there's at least one more election cycle where they can do that. The number two factor is the unknown is who are the Democrats going to nominate? Who's going to head their ticket? Is it going to be Elizabeth Warren? Is it going to be Bernie uh, Sanders? Is it going to be Cory Booker? Who's it going to be? If it's an extreme left-wing candidate, that doesn't pl- that's you're not going to have the same kind of dynamics in Georgia that you had in a midterm when when the election was really about Trump and Trump alone at a certain level. So that's what the that's what the dynamic in 2020 is going to be. About. What if it's a Beto or Wark? Could be. But I mean, does that change your calculus any about Georgia's response? Because I think it would be hard. You know, right now, at least what I saw in this last election was this whole socialism, socialism, mm-hmm. socialism, extremism, which was interesting because I never could run into someone touting that even knew what socialism was. Uh, I'd say, well, define that for me. And that was just a blank stare after that. So when you start getting someone who's so authentic like that, I mean, how are you going to field that ball? Well, the challenge is, I mean, in, in when you've got 20 people running on the Democratic side, which is about what the field's <laughs> looking like, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, you know, it, you, 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 on one level, you could argue it could be anybody. But in that field, the, the, the advantages go to the, the people with the names, whether it's, it's, uh, it's Bernie, who's been out there and already got a, a, a network, whether it's uh, the senator from Massachusetts or the senator from New Jersey, those people have the, the advantage in that huge field. It's going to be very difficult for somebody who isn't an already known factor to break through the clutter. Yeah, and now we've got Texas is going to be on Super Tuesday. We've got, you know, all of this now is 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 really sh- uh, shaken up, and it's going to be a different ball game this time around. Yeah, I think we're in a weird position talking about 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Nominate possibilities. I don't think anything is knowable. Right. I'm not. Assuming that Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders have an ins- have advantage over uh, uh, Governor O'Malley, or uh, it's <laughs> it's just unknowable. the The reality of what we're facing in the next year with President Trump is earth shaking. Mm-hmm. It's really significantly dangerous to all of our political. Validities. Well, it is certainly true, and Rusty Greg says we don't know who the Democratic candidate for president will be. Uh, so that'll affect the Senate race here. Of course, it will. We don't know where th- this whole thing is headed with Trump in the year ahead. I mean, it. it talk about unknowables. Yeah. And, and we do. What we do know is David Perdue will be on that ballot, and I it would be shocked if there's any sort of credible Republican challenger to him in the primary. And what we also know is that yeah, he's inextricably tied to, to President Trump, and he's made no bones about it. He is going to continue to be a, a, a champion for Donald Trump in Georgia. And will he do that if Donald Trump lets his 
children go to jail and abandon his children. Well, they'll, they'll that, double down a, on being aggrieved at that point. I mean, uh, that's the only card they I mean, have left to play. Are the Georgia voters going to put up with a president at the base? letting their children go to jail to save your own rear end. That's that's the reality, one of the possible realities we're looking at. We're not at that point. We don't know if we'll ever get to that point. And it's very speculative. It is Highly a speculative, speculative moment, point. which is a great time for us to take a break. We'll be back with more Political Rewind in a minute. I'm Will Over the past year, you listened as news broke and developed. You kept up with it all because being informed is important to you. And maybe as the stories changed, you did too. You heard new angles and voices. You understood. You grew. There will be more to learn in the new year, and we'll explore it all together. So please make a year-end gift now because when we grow, you do too. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. On the next Fresh Air, from prisoner to crime reporter, we talk with Carrie Blakinger about her experiences in prison, including solitary on narcotics charges. And we'll talk about Texas prison reforms her reporting has led to. She covers criminal justice, specializing in prisons and the death penalty for the Houston Chronicle. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein is with us, Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Rusty Paul, and uh, Teresa Tomlinson, about to end her tenure as mayor of Columbus and about to embark on a qu question of whether she wants to run for some <laughs> other office, whatever it might be. You wanted to make a last uh, comment about what we uh, well, just no, discussed? Yeah, Mary Margaret was talking about um, all the Mueller investigation and, and some of um, the filings that have recently been made, which are, are fairly intense. And uh, she was talking about uh, whether Trump's children might go to jail and so on and so forth. And we were talking about how speculative that was. And uh, and then I was saying, well, it looks as if we already have the president himself as an unindicted co-conspirator individual one at this time. At this time, it's just related quote, just related uh, to federal finance uh, law violations. Um, but I, I would say this, you know, I, I, and what I shouted out and interrupted Mary Margaret was I said that, that Republicans would then defend that on the, the being aggrieved, that that was a political ploy and that he was being uh, politically persecuted, and, and they would try to get some mileage out of that, I think, um, politically. But, but I, I would just say, you know, I think we have to be very careful— with our Republican friends who are reasonable. I mean, if you're so far off on the partisan spectrum, it, it won't matter. But it, with our reasonable folk, we've got to quit dividing up these very serious accusations uh, in part and acting like they don't matter. I mean, we're almost at the point where, uh, to take a hypothetical, uh, somebody's about to be indicted, let's just say, for bank robbery. And, and a friend comes forward and says, well, it's not illegal to walk into a bank. Okay. <laughs> well, no, it's it's not illegal to walk into a bank. It is illegal to rob a bank. So we, we can't have a conversation with reasonable people when we're segmenting very serious things that go to the heart right. of our well, democracy. Well, fortunately, we have a panel of reasonable people here yeah. uh, today. Um, so let's move on with more conversation <laughs> among reasonable people. Uh, let, let me uh, turn, if I can, real quickly. I'm fascinated, Greg Bluestein by the fact that there's going to be a bigger push in terms of medical marijuana in this upcoming session than there has been for some time. As I said at the top of the show, I just got back from Colorado. Uh, because I have family there, I go out there with some regularity. And over the couple of years since they legalized recreational use, I've been amazed, this trip especially, at how completely integrated everyday marijuana is into the culture of that state. And I have to admit, even though I'm a child of the 60s, I came away a little uncomfortable about the fact everywhere I went, everybody was stoned. <laughs> Jarring, isn't it? And by the way, th th this sort of sea change in Georgia is involving medical marijuana, not recreation, yes, as you know. I understand, but I'm just seeing it yeah. through a broader perspective. But it is. It's been a remarkable change in, in, in public perception, uh, especially among conservatives, towards 
uh, being more open towards medical marijuana uh, distribution and now cultivation. And that's what we've got um, two separate, a uh, couple pieces of legislation pending. One already. is on hemp, correct? On, on production of yeah. hemp. One would allow hemp farming. Yeah. And, and there's there's others that would allow uh, the cultivation yes. of medical marijuana in, in Georgia for the first time. Mary Margaret, do you see your colleagues in the legislature at this point, being willing to broaden uh, uh, marijuana for medical purposes, cultivation, uh, distribution. How do you think that's going to play out? My guess is answer is yes. I think that the Republicans have an interest in bringing young people into the party and bringing libertarian-leaning people into the party. Now, what's our number one industry? Agriculture. What's a good agricultural high-dollar profit product? Hemp. So I see there's a lot of opportunities here for uh, a substantive discussion about what do people want and what will they tolerate and a political benefit to uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. I don't—the federal government has to resolve the issue of whether marijuana is a uh, substance. But given that barrier is going to have to come down fairly soon, since I think— uh, with the states that have voted to, quote-unquote, legalize marijuana, that's half the population in the United States now, um, I think that the General Assembly of Georgia may demonstrate an openness to this issue in 2019, is my guess. Yeah. What do you think, Rusty? I mean, the conservatives in the party are certainly going to howl about this, aren't they? Well, I don't know. Not for medical purposes. I mean, one of the great lines that came out of the Colorado's uh, legalization of marijuana was from Peyton Manning. And I asked him about it, and he said, well, it's been good for the pizza business. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, I th- th- it's demonstrated that it helps with the nausea from chemotherapy, that it has some positive impact on people who uh, have epilepsy and other problems with seizures. Uh, at some point, the Federal Drug Administration is going to have to weigh in about the efficacy of this and make a determination whether this is something that is, is folk medicine or is it real medicine. And But I think that you're going to see a continued direction, as Mary Margaret said, with the acceptance of it in uses where there's a fairly common understanding that it does help. Yeah. It's just been utterly inhumane as we have had this naturally occurring substance that is is so critical in pain relief, uh, so critical to children who have seizures, all people that have seizures, and and we've sat back and and not allowed them to get relief um, that would uh, could be low cost and so on and so forth and not have the kind of side effects other things have, and so it's it's wonderful to see um, the relief coming from from the conservatives who have have had this sort of social conservatism. Uh, prejudice against uh, the use of hemp and, and cannabis. Um, and I would say, you know, when John Boehner left and retired and then went to work as a lobbyist for uh, cannabis and hemp, I think that was just such a wonderful changing of the tide. It was, <laughs> well, you know. when the manufacturers of Marlboro decide cigarettes are probably passe then and start moving into, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. active you know, commercialization of it. Isn't it sad you have to wait till you can th- till people can see the profitability? There's such a cynicism <laughs> about oh, so that. My God. You know, the con- What's the conservative view? I consider myself conservative about substance abuse. I consider myself that there are enough, too many people out there already high or stoned at work or driving a car. That's a legitimate bipartisan conservative view. There's also the more narrow conservative view that you can't, from the doctor's perspective, in my Emory $8.8 billion entity, you can't prove it helps. Mm. But given that conservatism, the medical-based conservative, or too many people are already drunk and high, conservatism, I think it's a discussion that relates to all of our society. And those people that have sick children, man, they make compelling witnesses. Well, you know, Rusty says we need some word from the feds on this. In fact, the feds have, to some extent, started to address this. In late September, uh, the Food and Drug Administration took a good portion of the hemp industry or the cannabinoid, mm. cannabinoid industry's uh, 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 use of hemp uh, to make their product off the Substance One list already. In other words, they've already moved to say that you, that kind of oil is, is no longer part of the, subs, uh, the uh, most prohibitive drugs out there. Yeah, but there's still so much confusion about bringing that oil across state lines. And we had lawmakers like Alan Peake, the godfather of the medical marijuana laws in Georgia, 
violate openly violating federal laws by bringing in cannabidiol oil from from Colorado to help patients in Georgia. And Representative Oliver's right; those the kids, those those sort of those people suffering from these diseases, these these illnesses, were the best spokesmen and spokeswomen for this effort. And you saw even Brian Kemp; he was the only Republican who was um, against cultivation in the in the gubernatorial race only major republican and he even flipped his position uh, in the runoff because of that yeah, one guys. of our facebook live uh, viewers uh, todd um, cormack says the only real side effect of cannabis is the occasional desire to listen to fish but you get over that in a couple of hours, and that's P H I S the uh, the, <laughs> the band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good, Todd. Yes. Uh, all right, Rusty. More serious note: um, uh, the country was kind of mesmerized yesterday by this confrontation in the Oval Office between President Trump and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, at which the president uh, said, "Well, I will shut down the government over uh, uh, lack of funding for the wall." That was entertaining, it was enlightening, but it has some significant impacts if, in fact, we move to a shutdown. Because one of the things that Georgia's uh, congressional delegation is trying to do is to attach to the continuing resolution funding to help the people who suffered in Hurricane Michael. So this could have a significant impact here in Georgia. No question. I mean, that was that was the uh, we have a term in politics called political theater, and that was political theater at its uh, in its essence. And both of them won. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi got what they wanted for their base. They stood up for what their base wanted them to do. And Trump said, if I have to shut the government down, we'll get it. I, we just but the problem is this shutting down the government in the end never really works for anybody. But it's it's a great negotiating ploy, I guess. And maybe he does. I mean, the one thing I've learned about Donald Trump, you can't accept what he says on these kinds of uh, very in, uh, base instincts that he has. You Whether can. It's political, you can. political theater you can. hurts people. And this is a great example. I agree it was theater, and that's what Donald Trump is about, is a reality star, his highest and best use of his whole personality is as a reality star. Think about the military state that we are and all of the military civilian employees across our state not getting a paycheck for... X number of days or weeks. Political theater hurts people, whether it's the victims of Hurricane Michael or it's the federal employees across Georgia. And, and so does the unwillingness to sit down and compromise and really work through some of these issues. Immigration has been sitting out there so long, not just illegal immigration, but legal immigration. These issues have been kicked down the road by both parties for so long. That it's 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 you know no wonder people are losing faith yeah, in the system. Rusty, and the Republican say, Party's was, fighting for a it, billion dollar useless wall. Okay, in that it's not, I don't know that it's useless. It was a spectacle of incredible magnitude. It was a national embarrassment. Uh, I think the Democrats did show up to talk in good faith and negotiate, Rusty. Um, the president would not allow them to do that. He wanted this spectacle. It was— uh, I disagree. It, it, yeah, it really was. And, and, and I don't think you can count on what he says. Yes. I've got to call a halt to this conversation yeah. because we are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Um, so I'm sorry to interrupt you when you were about to keep going on that, because I would have liked to hear what you all had to say. I can't do it. Teresa Tomlinson, Rusty Paul, Mary Margaret Oliver, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for being here. I want to let everybody know that we're back on TV on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. We've taken a break from that for a few weeks, uh, but we're coming back Sunday morning at 9. And in January, uh, we're going to be on the air with a TV version of Rewind on Friday nights at 7 p.m., which I think is going to be terrific. And I hope you'll all join us for that. Uh, I'm Bill Nygut. Please join us again for our show on Friday. Until then, uh, have a great couple of days.